All right, let's go through this one last time. This is the Midnight Myth Podcast, the podcast where we explore history, mythology, philosophy, and theoretical physics, and how they intersect with our popular culture storytelling. We watched a lot of movies, read a lot of articles, tried to find the perfect story, and for the last two years, we've been the one and only Midnight Myth Podcast. But then something weird happened. We wound up here, in this studio, but not our studio. And now we're recording a podcast about Spider-Man, a new Spider-Man. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and where they intersect and bubble out into our popular storytelling. My name is Derek, as you know, and with me is my co-host, Laurel. So excited to be here. I'm so excited to be here, too. We are continuing our conversation from last week, so I highly recommend that you listen to our previous episode before this one. It's not necessary, but I think they are sort of linked thematically. Yeah, we laid some groundwork in the last one for the character that we're going to continue to analyze, but we're going to analyze a new facet. We discussed the character Spider-Man last week, and we really wanted to answer a fundamental question. Why Spider-Man, in terms of why is Spider-Man such an iconic and popular hero in America and has been for such a long time. And I feel pretty happy with our answer. When we were reflecting on that episode, we realized that we didn't bring up a lot of textual evidence to support our arguments. It's very important to us at The Midnight Myth that we link what we are saying back to specific pieces of either literature, art, that emphasize our points So we wanted to dive into a specific Spider-Man narrative and dissect it and give it the Midnight Myth treatment. And it was a very easy choice for us. We wanted to talk about the Sony animated movie Into the Spider-Verse that came out in December of 2018, just recently came out. Yes, it's also the Oscar winner for Best Animated Film for 2018 a critical darling and a, a massive critical success. People truly loved this film and we loved it as well. And what's interesting about using this as a springboard to continue our conversation about Spider-Man and what's amazing about this film period is that last week we talked about what it means to be Peter Parker. And while Peter Parker makes an appearance, makes a very important appearance in this film, uh, It's about what it's like to be Miles Morales and to be another facet of what Spider-Man means and taps into a a universal aspect of the hero that we love so much. So I'm, for one, very excited to dive in to this Spider-Verse and to dissect what it means to be Miles Morales, what it means to be Spider-Man today, and some of the key concepts and themes that this movie is toying with uh, really spectacularly. Yeah, as we discussed Spider-Man, in part, one of the major appeals is its generational narrative that it is about a youth and it's about the youth taking their place in the world and butting up against the older generation. Right. I think it was only fitting to look at when Peter Parker hands the torch in this movie, so to speak, to Miles Morales. I think it really hits that theme of we have a new generation of Spider-Man fans And now we have a new Spider-Man, even though Miles Morales has been around in the comics for a long time, but introduced to many people for the first time in this movie as Spider-Man, not as Spider-Man's apprentice, not as Robin, not as Aqualad, but as Spider-Man and becomes the Spider-Man in this universe. So couldn't be more excited to talk about Into the Spider-Verse. I hope you all have seen it. 
The movie did incredibly well. If you haven't seen it, consider this your spoiler warning. Yes. This is a no-holds-barred discussion, but the movie came out in December of 2018, so we'll take it that you have seen it. If you haven't seen it, I the only places I know to get it legitimately is to like rent or purchase through like your iTunes, Amazon, etc. I don't know any services that are currently streaming it. There might be some, but please watch the movie. It is a unique and amazing experience. Then come back to us and then come to us for your in-depth discussion and analysis. Yeah, I can't recommend this movie enough. And it's got tremendous rewatchability as well. There is so much going on beneath the surface and it makes it a true midnight myth. Uh, Before we go on and dive into this conversation, uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, We're out there on the social media universe. So if you want to get engaged, uh, hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth or on Facebook or Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. This is where we're going to have extra blog content, uh, and you'll find out all about our secondary podcast, The Wheel of Ka, where Derek and Steve unpack Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower, uh, which is now... uh, they're working on the third episode and it's really been fantastic to see Derek and Steve work together and uh, analyze this narrative. Other things you'll find on our website, some of our sources and inspiration, we uh, definitely encourage you to check some of those out. And if you wanted to read along with us in the Dark Tower or you want to get a better understanding of Uh, medieval history like Derek is doing with the great courses right now, or you want to learn all about King Arthur, definitely check out Audible. We have an Audible banner on our website right now that'll give you two free audiobooks when you sign up for a free trial. So I highly recommend it. Get reading, get listening, get enjoying. Let's go. All right. So let's dive right into into the Spider-Verse. Wow, that was a dumb way to say that. Oh my God, we're going to walk into that so many times tonight. Allow myself to introduce myself. Myself. All right, focus, Derek. We are are doing a podcast. We're live. Kind of. Not at all. So, Into the Spider-Verse is the story of young Miles Morales, where he is bitten by a radioactive spider who leaks in through another dimension from an experiment by all of Spider-Man's villains, but mainly the Kingpin at the top of it. At the company Alchemax. At the company Alchemax, and he gets spider powers, only to find Peter Parker to get killed by the Kingpin in the very beginning. And the fun part of this movie is, since there are multiple dimensions, multiple Spider-Men, girls... Spider-people. People. Yes, sorry. Thank you for the politically correct term. Spider-humans and spider-cartoons enter into this universe and they have to band together. Miles isn't a very good Spider-Man at first, and by the end he is the Spider-Man and helps return all the other Spider-Mans to their corresponding dimensions and all is right in the world. Spider-Man is there and he reconciles with his father too. Oh, what a nice narrative. Yeah. Very quick recap. I would like to ask a few fundamental questions. Yeah. So, Undoubtedly, one of the keys to the success of Into the Spider-Verse is its stunning style in animation and art. And I think it, it, is, it is so amazing that trying to really peel down to theme and character and inspiration was a little bit of a challenge to me because I found myself just being like, my fucking God, this movie is beautiful. You're a little too dazzled to go any further than that, at least on the first watch, especially. The first watch was almost overwhelming. If there's been one criticism I've heard out by, out of the fans uh, discussing this movie is that they were a little overwhelmed by the artistic style, which I think is valid. I wasn't so overwhelmed that it took me out of the movie. Some people found that to be true, but they're wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if you thought, thought that way, that's fine. My question that I'd like to ask you is, what do you think is the main theme of this movie? And before I ask that question, we know that Spider-Man movies have always had the consistent theme of Spider-Man and Peter Parker having to put aside whatever they want, whatever their selfish desires are, to aspire for a more responsible life. And with great power comes great responsibility. With that being said, what do you think the theme is in Into the Spider-Verse? And 
Is it similar and related to that major theme? Uh, yes, to the second half of that question. Uh, and the way I'm going to answer this is to point to the most significant literary reference that we have and the most explicit literary reference that we have within Into the Spider-Verse. And that's going to be Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. I would say one of the most potent themes that runs through this uh, film and this coming-of-age story, this coming-of-spider-power story for Miles Morales, is the sense of great expectations. And whether those are crushing expectations or whether those are expectations that can help you to transcend your own vulnerabilities and anxieties. Uh, so there's a connection, I think, to the conversation that we had about Peter Parker last week and what it's like to come of age in a really complicated world where morals are not black and white and a whole lot is asked of you and you have obligations to do right, but you also have obligations to fulfill your duty to this person, that person, yourself. Uh, there's a connection between Miles and that but it's distilled down in um, a really powerful way to show us an honest portrait of uh, what a kid coming of age in 2018 looks like and how they handle and juggle the great expectations placed before them. I'm in mostly in agreement with you that it is sort of an adaptation on the with great power comes great responsibility theme. I do agree that I don't think it's an accident that when we first meet Miles, he does not want to go to this school. He feels the pressure of this new school it, to be immense. Yeah, he has been a, uh, he's tested into a magnet school that he considers to be elitist. Yeah, I, I don't really take that criticism at face value. When he says that in that scene to his father, I think he's just trying to think of any other excuse to not go to that school. Yeah. Because he's just flat out, he's not comfortable there. Right. He's comfortable in his old school and he doesn't want to go to the new one. And the very first thing we see when he's in the new school and they do his sort of like school quick montage is he has to read Great Expectations. Yeah. We flash forward to his essay that he is assigned to that his physics teacher asks him to write where he gets all of the answers wrong. And the physics teacher says the only way you got those answers wrong is because you knew all the answers. So you're actually getting a 100. And now I'm going to, to assign an essay. The essay is going to be what type of person do you want to be? He titles that great expectations on his yeah. pad. No one told him to call it that. So he writes it and then he immediately leaves and goes to his uncles in which they go out to the subway and in the subway he creates, he tags this big art piece where it says, what does it say? No, no expectations. expectations. I think the beginning of the movie signals very clearly that there's great expectations placed upon this character and this character does not feel like they should live up to them. Doesn't want to live up with, with them would rather stay in their comfort zone. Yeah. Other themes that come up that play big in the movie is that the mother says, you know, we don't run from things miles. And in the beginning of the movie, he kind of wants to run what happens when he first gets his powers. What does he do? He runs. Yeah. He runs away. So we have these, these expectations that are laid upon him externally. We have a character that's told not to run, whose impulse is to run. Even though his shoelaces are always, always untied. untied. Which is awesome. Um, and, and pays off when he tries to do his first Spider-Man jump and yeah, trips because yeah. his shoelaces are untied. So I, I would say that in many ways, it is an adaptation of with great power comes great responsibility. So with great power with comes great responsibility is a direct call to do something. Yeah. Whatever power you have, you are responsible to act on it. The greater that power, the greater your, your duty to act in accordance to use that power justly and wisely and morally. This feels a little different to me. And I think yeah. the movie is aware of it as well. When Miles says to Peter, he meets Peter Parker from the other dimension who's you know, 12 Peter years B. older. Parker, yeah. yeah. He's 12 years older than the Peter Parker who dies in, in this dimension. And he says, Hey Peter, but with great power comes great. And that Peter Parker is like, Doesn't hear don't it. you fucking say that shit to me. That shit ruined my life. Right? <laughs> that shit. It made me a lonely old man. And I don't want to hear like this mantra anymore. I think there is an adaptation and, and almost an erasure of that theme. 
Right. Or at least an acknowledgement of the fact that like we've heard that line so many times that it starts to lose its meaning. And so there's an evolution of what that could mean for this character, I think, in the Great Expectations thread that runs through it. Um, so it's like the Great Expectations is the inverse yeah, of with great power yeah. comes great responsibility. Great Expectations is saying, hey, you don't have any power yet, but we expect you to act as if you do have this power. Right. We want you to act in this way. We want you to be this person that we decide for you to be, and you don't have autonomy. Whereas with great power comes yeah. great responsibility, you have the choice to act the way you want. The more power I have, the more responsible I should be, Yeah, but I'm not necessarily going to be. Whereas great expectations is do this. Yeah. Go to this school, get straight A's, Right. be the perfect student. Don't mess around. Don't do your artwork. Don't tag, you know, a street sign. Listen to your father. You we don't run from things. People telling him you can and cannot do this manifests towards the end when they're like, you're not a good enough Spider-Man. Yeah. You can't come and help us. You're not ready to fight. You can't be, you can't stand every time that you get punched down. You're not able to, you know, turn invisible on command. And I think the overcoming that the 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 crux of why this Spider-Man becomes a great Spider-Man is when he really does you know what, I'm going to cast these expectations aside and I'm going to be the person I want to be. Yeah, that's what I perceive as the journey there is is from uh, feeling crushed by the expectations placed on you by external forces and people who just want the best for you uh, toward uh, a sense of internalizing your own uh, ideals, a sense of being like, I, I can set my expectations and exceed them or I can... I can perform the person that I want to be uh, in a way that feels authentic to my goals, right? So totally, yeah, a, a, a transformation of external expectations to internal expectations, and internal expectations as being more sustainable and more um, validating uh, as you're going through life. Because just fulfilling what people want you to do is not something that's going to bring you a harmonious and happy life. Finding self-efficacy and finding self-validation is going to get you a lot closer to that. So I think that's, that's totally. Miles's journey with the great expectations. I do want to spend a, a few moments exploring the like many levels of reference that are going on with that literary work, if that's okay with you. Yeah. One quick point if you yeah, need, before we, we completely transition out. One of the things that I love about this movie is that it takes a theme that we've seen through Spider-Man, yeah. Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3, Spider-Man 1 again, Spider-Man 2 again, Spider-Man Homecoming. We've seen through six movies. With great power comes great responsibility. It finally took that theme yeah. and evolved it yeah. and changed it and adapted it to the, to a new character. It's like, God, thank fucking God right. for a new theme that is similar, that is in the same wheelhouse, but is different and is unique to this character. And it was just refreshing. And it's one of the reasons I love this movie. I absolutely agree because it pays homage. It like, it gives its respect to it. I think really beautifully. Uh, and we talked about with great power comes great responsibility a lot last week and how powerful and how meaningful it still is to us. It's a great theme. I it's don't disagree with that theme. theme, but do we need six movies about it? But there has, yeah, there has to be an acknowledgement of the fact that like, there's a reason we keep telling this story. And in order to find that reason, we have to evolve that story and we have to uh, view it from different perspectives and we have to, uh, acknowledge its different aspects. So I, I definitely appreciate that point as a, as a way into understanding this movie. And thank you for giving me that space before your transition. Oh yeah. Now to your transition. Now to Charles Dickens. Let me take you on a journey to. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I fell <laughs> to asleep. Victorian <laughs> London. I don't know if, if everyone is as big a Charles Dickens fan as I am, but I truly think he is uh, one of the greatest writers who ever lived. And the father of the modern comic book. So what I mean when I say that is uh, Charles Dickens 
was in his time sometimes derided by his contemporaries and the great authors who uh, lived and wrote at the same time as him because he would sensationalize his stories in a way. And he found the most fame by publishing his novels a chapter at a time in weekly or monthly periodicals. So the novel Great Expectations, as we know it today, was actually published over the course of a year, from 1860 to 1861, week by week, with a new chapter coming out every week, and voraciously uh, excited customers would go and purchase this periodical to see what happened next in this action-packed adventure. And it is an action-packed adventure. So he's filling out the, like, the need for a continuing story and he's laying the groundwork for what will become the modern comic book uh, and will, what will become the way that we consume stories today and what's evolved into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and its uh, variants. But the novel is a sweeping coming-of-age story, and it's about an orphaned young man named Pip who finds himself uh, chosen by an anonymous benefactor to receive a huge amount of wealth and an opportunity to rise into high society. Uh, and we can see a lot of parallels to Miles in Pip, I think, because he's uh, obviously willing to accept this opportunity to transcend his situation, but he feels himself being pulled away from his humble origins. He has a really loving yet rustic uncle named Joe, who's a blacksmith, and he has to leave the forge to become a gentleman. So I can kind of see the connection to Miles being like, I want to be among the people, or like, I just want to hang out with my cool friends instead of going to this smarty pants school. You can see that sort of personal connection there. Um, there's even a chapter, the first chapter of Great Expectations, Pip gets accosted in a graveyard uh, by an escaped convict. And I think that directly parallels the scene in Spider-Verse where Miles first encounters Peter B. Parker, that this very important relationship gets forged uh, next to the dead. Uh, and the convict at the end of the story turns out to be, spoiler alert, the mysterious benefactor. So we have this element of unmasking uh, the true identity that is like a huge part of Spider-Man, a huge part of comic book conventions, but you see it a lot with the, um, the older villains of Spider-Man who will turn out to be Norman Osborn or will turn out to be Uncle Aaron at the end of this movie. And we also have the doubling of characters and foils. So we have a lot of conventions, I think, that um, are being referenced within Spider-Verse. And of course, there's the alliterative names like Philip Pirup, who is uh, Pip and sounds a lot like Peter Parker in some ways, or Miles Morales. So I think there's a lot of uh, sort of subtle nods to not just the themes, but the form and the structure of Dickens and Great Expectations that's happening here in this many-leveled system of homage. Very cool. I have never read Great Expectations, you putting myself on blast. To. I've been trying with Dickens off and on, and I find I I get an audible credit and I download Dickens and I get about a third into it and then I ask for a refund and I get something <laughs> about history. That's understandable. <laughs> it tends to happen. I don't think it's a good audible format yeah. that I've, I've found yet. But um I mean, I uh, I do really, it, it, I really appreciate your analysis there. I think the book is not an accident in both the theme of expectations and what the book tends to be about, and also the recognition that serialized writing came from Dickens. And another thing that I certainly resonate with when we were discussing a few weeks ago, I forget exactly which one, the reminder that Shakespeare was considered pop culture in yeah. his day. Well, Dickens, which is now considered a classic, was considered to be trash writing for the masses in his time, A.G. pop culture. Yeah. That when you create a piece of art and you put it out there and you put it out there for consumption, it has it can have a long, long life and it can take on lots of meaning. And there's no reason to discard a thing like into the spider verse. Cause it's main character is Spider-Man. Yeah. Just cause it's popular just because people enjoy it. There can be tons of art there. And I think a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, people will be examining, Hey, let's get into the head of thus of us Americans and how we lived. And one way that they'll, they'll be able to get that entry point is to examine the art we consumed and why we consumed it. 
I think that's part of the reason the Midnight Myth exists. Yeah. That we are interested in that uh, reflection of understanding the narrative and understanding how narratives move large groups of people, why they move them, and what ultimately that means. And the fact that comics and Spider-Man, by extension, are under the shadow of a brilliant writer like Dickens is no surprise because in 250, 300 years, Stan Lee might be that Dickens that people are examining and trying to understand and what this person did to revolutionize storytelling by creating Marvel comics. So I'm totally in lockstep with that, even though I haven't read the book. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's so much that you can appreciate there. And this movie really is a love letter to comic books, right? It it makes every visual reference that it can to the panels of a comic book. Sometimes it'll even show you comic book covers. And there are just tons and tons of Easter eggs from the animated Stanley cameo to the contacts in uh, Jefferson Davis's phone that say Steve Ditko. And so many references. That, Real quick, for those who don't know, who is Steve Ditko? Uh, co-creator of Spider-Man with Stanley. Um, so there are tons of levels of reference and appreciation, I think, that are part of this film that I, I think come through in the themes, too, because this is a work of love. And I, I absolutely feel the love coming through. I can feel every visual artist. I can feel every effects person. I can feel every scripter, animator, storyboarder's love for the character uh, and love for Spider-Man and comic books in every frame of this movie. Stylistically, it's meant to look like a moving comic. Yeah. Which is but, but fucking even, amazing. Even transcends that into something just that we've we've never seen before. Because we've never seen a moving comic. It became its own unique yeah. form of animation, which is why it won an Oscar. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, comics and comic-inspired art is now Oscar-worthy. Um, and has been since Heath Ledger's performance. And now we have, let's see, The Dark Knight. We have Suicide Squad, Black Panther, and Into the Spider-Verse. All Oscar winners. Oh, my God. The Suicide Squad won an Oscar. Yeah. I'm sorry I brought that rabbit hole Oh, up. my Let's God. Let's not go there. But so it did. It won an Oscar. Back we, to Into the Spider-Verse. As we sort of fall in and gush, how would you feel about a little bit of quantum physics in this podcast? Yeah. I think as we... Dust off the old scientific and analytical part of my brain, which since I've been an adult has done nothing but just get dustier <laughs> and more decrepit. My mind palace is in shambles. There's a aspect of this movie that resonates with certain scientific theories and principles that we wanted to bring to the table. And there is a alternate question outside of just into the Spider-Verse that we wanted to examine. And that question was, fundamentally, why do narratives that involve multiple dimensions and multiple universes, why are they so, so appealing? Because they have to be, because it's pretty common. It's, it's common in the respect from Lost to Rick and Morty to Into the Spider-Verse to the Netflix series OA. There are plenty of narratives out there. Um, uh, Man on the High Castle. The idea that there are multiple dimensions and realities that are existing somehow simultaneously. Doctor Who dives into it. How do we understand the theory and the idea of a multiverse, a multiple worlds? What is the narrative purpose of it? Why are we drawn to it? And why does it seem to be having kind of a moment right now. Yeah. And in that we started kind of understanding, is there any scientific basis to this at all? Uh, you forgot to mention you're doing a sub podcast on a story that the dark tower yeah, about traveling to different dimensions. Uh, it, it's, it's everywhere. It's Rick and Morty. It's, it's all over the place and feels extremely ubiquitous right now, even though it's something that's been sort of at home in comics and sci-fi and fantasy for a while we just notice this sort of confluence of these themes and we're like, why? Um, so I'd love to talk about that a little bit. I think, uh, you know, from a comic book perspective, there's a, a number of reasons why having a, uh, a connected multiverse might be attractive. Part of that is going to be that you have a system that's built on continued serial serialization characters whose lives span decades, whose stories span decades and different artists come in and out 
to take up the mantle of those characters. You can solve continuity problems, you can retcon, you can reboot, you can imagine things in different universes. And you also get this like creativity bubble where you can start to engage in counterfactuals and imagine familiar characters in new situations. So I'm thinking specifically of uh, Superman Red Sun, the comic book where uh, it starts with the what if, what if Superman was raised in the Soviet Union and instead of fighting for the American way, fought for Stalinism and social work, uh, socialism. Uh, or Watchmen, which imagines an alternate re reality where the U.S. won the Vietnam War and Nixon has been president for five terms and we have a completely different outlook on the world. Uh, so there's a lot of applications for this in comic books and serialization. I... I largely agree with both of those examples that you brought up in terms of establishing continuity, being able to wipe the continuity clean when you need to, because so, you can have new artists and new voices and the ability to engage in counterfactuals. But both of those points, while true, feel like pure utility. Yeah. It's about the usefulness of a multiverse and the usefulness to the creator and that they can use a multiverse so they can do these things. I don't think, so I don't think to me, while very valid, I don't find that answer satisfying yeah. in the respect that just because a it's useful to the writer, it, the professional storyteller, doesn't mean it's necessarily something the audience wants and is drawn to almost like a moth to a flame. And then there are certain narratives outside of the comic where it may not be useful. It might be detrimental and yeah. confusing. Lost is an example. Doctor Who is an example. The Dark Tower you mentioned is an example where it's not really useful to have multiple worlds. In fact, the stories would be easier if there were one. Um, Rick and Morty is another example yeah. that, you know, it would be easier if it was just one universe with this crazy man, but it gets so much more complicated. There's now an entire there's an citadel of Rick's. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm really glad that you're bringing this up because I do want to draw a distinction between like uh, having alternate or parallel universes as a utility to um, increase the longevity of your story and the sort of subgenre that we're seeing where uh, like into the Spider Verse in a unique way these parallel universes start to blend and interact with each other. So we have to confront the idea of a multiverse as a part of the narrative, not just as the given circumstances of the narrative, if that makes any sense. Yeah, sure. So um, to get a little bit scientific, uh, there are a few ways that we can think about uh, how a multiverse or why a multiverse would exist in our actual uh, plane. Real quick, I just yeah. want to shout out a good friend of mine. Yeah. I, ha I happen to have a friend who is a physics professor so I reached out to him to uh, get some, you know, knowledge and get sort of some like cursory layman way or layman um, physics. Uh, his name is Connor. So I just wanted to personally thank him on the show. Connor, thank you for giving us a physics lecture. And pointing us in all the right directions. So that was much appreciated because we are not physicists. No. We are storytelling anthropologists. No. <laughs> um, and this is not our uh, our comfort zone, but it's very exciting to explore what it means and its, uh, its significance in a narrative context. So I'm really excited about it. But I'm going to bring up two possible explanations of a multiverse tonight. Um, the first uh, being a cosmological multiverse. Uh, and I got most of this explanation from a Caltech uh, researcher named Sean Carroll, who hosts a podcast called Mindscape uh, and has guested with Neil deGrasse Tyson on Star Talk, and is just really excellent at explaining this for lay people as well. So uh, a shout out to Sean Carroll. Uh, the cosmological multiverse essentially supposes that because our universe is expanding and accelerating in that expansion, uh, there is a possibility that there could be pockets or bubbles so far away from us and racing away from us so fast that if you went there, uh, the laws of physics might look totally different there. So it would effectively be another universe or a bubble universe within our universe. Now, the other aspect of this is that because of the acceleration of the universe's expansion, uh, 
any human technology would not be able to catch up with that expansion. So we effectively could not go fast enough to reach those universes. So they might as well be other universes. So that's one possible explanation. What I think we're looking at in Spider-Verse and what I think a lot of stories that we see um, are engaging with is a quantum explanation for the multiverse. Uh, this has a name called the many worlds interpretation, and it's essentially an explanation of quantum theory, which is the, uh, the study of the very, very small subatomic particles, which once you get down to a certain level of small, stop, obe uh, stop obeying the laws of classical physics, like Newton's laws or like uh, general rel relativity, like we would observe on our plane. Still with me? I'm still with you. Okay, cool. You're asking me? <laughs> yeah. So many worlds interpretation is pioneered by uh, a physicist named Hugh Everett. And this is an outgrowth of the property of quantum theory that in some cases during a quantum experiment, uh, when you're trying to uh, figure out what's going on with a quantum particle, a really, 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 really small particle, like a, an electron. Electron? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was going to interrupt and say, could you define what a quantum particle is? And you did. So yeah, so like an electron, uh, the act of observing it or trying to measure it can actually affect the outcome. So if I've got electrons, which can either spin clockwise or counterclockwise, uh, as soon as I observe it, it picks one, essentially, and it'll spin clockwise, and I see it spinning clockwise. But there is an equal possibility that I opened it up and it was spinning counterclockwise. Uh, and this theory, the many worlds interpretation, says that both of those outcomes are equally real and represent their own individual universe. So to think about this on a more macro scale that might make a little more sense, if I rolled a six-sided die and six was face up once I rolled that die, one through five branch off into corresponding universes that are right next to ours where a different value showed up and the rest of the universe is determined or affected by how that die roll ended up. And we end up with this sort of infinitely multiplying universes. In essence, every decision that we make or do not make splinters off into another universe that does or does not exist. Which or does exist simultaneously with yeah. the one that we currently are in now. Yeah. Uh, and that's just the basic understanding of the many worlds interpretation. But it's something that Doc Ock actually says in the science video in that physics class that Miles beginning. is entering in the very beginning of the movie. We hear her in the background saying, every choice that we make would create countless other possibilities. So she's affirming here that uh, everything that we do, every outcome of every event or every choice creates a sort of splinter universe. And then we see, of course, the engine for all of this is the collider at Alchemax, which uh, brings all of these uh, alternate universes or these parallel universes closer together where they can interact. Science says that's not possible, but most scientists are actually kind of okay with the science in this movie. They're like, it works on a narrative level, so we're okay with them bending that rule. Can I ask this? So one, thank you so much for explaining yeah. high level theoretical physics. You know, as I understand it, um, you know, the movie is as far as we know, technologically impossible, but hell it's a comic book movie. There's not spider yeah. people. So yeah, we can suspend disbelief. There. Absolutely. I think understanding where the grounded reality in physics about a multiple you know, multiverse type world would be is cool. It's interesting. What does it mean for the narrative? It's an incredible question. And I think th there is a, like, I think the, the snap answer that I've gotten that I've given and that I've gotten from other people is like, well, this dimension that we're in is shit. So why wouldn't we want to imagine uh, a better universe or an alternate universe that might give us a way out or an opportunity to see what things would look like if we had done things a different way. I don't know if I buy that as the be all and end all, but 
that's definitely the instinct that I think is part of some of these multiverse narratives. I agree that that was where my mind went to immediately with the question of why multiverse narratives. Right. But using, using Into the Spider-Verse as an example, I don't think that explanation holds up because one, the main character is in a universe, has no desire to escape the universe, and its main plot point is to get all of the spider people back, back to their, to their original universes. universes. And for the main character to feel comfortable with their own future, their own power, their own expectations. So Miles is not looking to run away from his universe in the way that, you know, Rick Sanchez might be from Rick and Morty. Right, right. I have a alternate theory that I've been kicking around and I don't have any evidence to support it. So I want to throw it out here to you, Laurel, and I want to throw it out here to the Midnight Myth listeners Tell me if you think I'm okay or if I'm on the money or if I'm not. I think a multiverse from a narrative device perspective gives us an illusion of power in a time period where we feel powerless. To tell you what I mean about that in a little more detail, if everything that you do is so important that it can create and splinter off another universe you have just become a very important person. Yeah. And when we live in an era in time where people question, does my vote matter? Does it matter if I recycle or not? Why don't I just get an SUV? I can't stop global warming, so I might as well get the big car I'm comfortable with. We're dealing with a moment in time where there's a mass level of apathy and powerlessness that I think the multiverse narrative then comes in and says, no, you are actually very powerful. There is an entire universe that is being branched out by your decisions. And I think it allows us a certain element of escapism that suddenly puts an individual and their choices at the center of not just a universe, but all universes. I think it's about an expression of the mass level of apathy and societal discontent that we have that we even matter it is a representation of the failure of neoliberalism to really make us feel like empowered actualized people in our lives and rather feeling like all right i'm part of this big machine called this country and society i'm in and i'm going i'm doing my job and like yeah but you know what if i disappeared tomorrow nobody would really care other than you know the few people that like me and might as well just, you know, not care. Then suddenly it's just like, no, wait, everything I do branches off into multiple realities. And suddenly there's a universe where I am king and another one where I am Aquaman and another one where I'm Spider-Man. And suddenly everything we do is important. And suddenly the powerless and apathetic feel powerful and they feel uh, that, that what they do matters. I, I'm really glad you brought this up because I think it connects to Spider-Verse in a lot of ways. And I think it, it is upheld by that quote from Doc Ock saying every choice that we make can branch off countless possibilities. Uh, there is an affirmation of free will. There's an affirmation of individual significance that I think uh, is, is unique in the way that it's presented because it says that like, yes, you are part of a collective, but also you matter a whole lot. Um, it also is reminding me, there's a, a famous short story by Ray Bradbury called the sound of thunder, um, that deals with time travel. And there's a character in it who is able to time travel into the past. And he steps on a prehistoric butterfly and, comes back to his present and everything is different. So it, it, it deals in sort of the rippling butterfly effect there and uh, asserts the significance and importance of every single choice, every single event, every single uh, particle coming together to make something happen. And I think in Spider-Verse, there is a tension between where we arrive uh, in Miles's narrative where he says anyone can wear the mask, even you, and points to the fact that this singular thing, which is Spider-Man, is actually a universal, multiversal thing that everyone has access to. 
everyone has access to the kind of power that changes worlds, that changes universes. And I think that's absolutely in line and on board with what you just said as the reasoning for wanting a multiverse in our narratives. Very cool. Yeah, I, I just think that that works on on so, so many levels. Definitely. I, uh, I think I've said a lot of what I wanted to say, but I, can I pivot to another yeah, point here? Would, would it be worthwhile to talk a little bit about Uncle Aaron? Yes, it would. I think we can't really leave Into the Spider-Verse without discussing this character. There's so many brilliant characters, and we're not going to have time oh to talk God, about Peter them B. all. Oh, my God, Peter B. Parker, like, get out of here. Yeah, or, or Spider-Woman. Spider-Gwen. Or fucking Spider-Pig. Yeah, Peter Porker. That was amazing. So, Ugh. And Nicolas Cage. Oh, my God, I'm gushing. All right. Yeah, anyway. Sorry, all of rail them. in the fanboy. Um Uncle Aaron to me is a very interesting character when we also think about how our decisions reverberate to the point where they can create other universes. We have two mentor figures for Miles. We have his father, who is a police officer, and his uncle, who's a supervillain, which we don't yeah. know in the very beginning of the movie. We have the uncle who sees Miles as he is, who doesn't place any expectations yeah, or pressure him on right him. Where he's at. He mentors him. He's the cool uncle that you can go, you know, ditch school and go and hang out. He's going to give you tips on how to pick up the, the cute girl in your class. And you're like, it's awesome. He's going to encourage you to do artwork. He's going to encourage you to break the law and do illegal artwork. And you're like, damn, this is great. This is so cool. Versus a father who is by the book, who's a cop who could run a red light and not get caught, but he won't do it, who will embarrass you in front of your entire class saying, hey, you can't leave until you say you love me, and I want to make sure everybody knows it. I love that moment. And we see in Miles this pull towards his Uncle Aaron because he views his Uncle Aaron free and free from Miles' expectations to the father who places the expectations upon him. The reveal that Aaron is the villain prowler. Yeah. And when Aaron realizes that Miles is a spider person is probably like the emotional fucking meat and potatoes of this movie. Yeah. One of the best scenes, Spider-Man as a narrative always has an element of tragedy propelling the hero to their hero life. And for Miles, it's the loss of his uncle Aaron. And I would submit that one of the things it's trying to say is to thread the balance between the poles of do whatever you want, no matter what, and everything will work out. Who cares with great power? Fuck off on responsibility to being like with great power comes responsibility. You can never break any of the rules in the regards to that. Yeah. And you better do everything exactly right. Otherwise I'm going to whoop your ass, you know, of the father, which he, miles as a character grows to become the, what Aaron says to him when he dies, the, the best, best of, of all, all of them. Yeah. And yeah, to, to, to piggyback off what you're saying, both Aaron and Jeff and Miles's dad realize that they're wrong and realize that, you know, there is a, a pull towards being more Spider-Man like uh, in having a good life and being a good person and living morally. And so Miles becomes the, uh, the model who says, I can uh, respect and love and admire the Uncle Aaron's of the world, and I can respect and love and admire the Jeff Davises of the world, and also be motivated by my own internal sense of right and wrong and what I'm responsible for. Um, so I, yeah, I deeply appreciate that. Um, I also want to call out just on this line of inquiry how... Um, you mentioned that uh, scene where uh, Miles's dad won't let him go into the school without him saying "I love you" and embarrasses him in front of everybody, and it pays off with Miles in the Spider-Man suit uh, saying "I love you" to his dad, who has no idea he's under there. Um, there is a sort of embrace of uh, masculine affection uh, in this movie, uh, and it actualizes in uh, you know the relationship of Peter B. Parker and Miles as well. Uh, Peter is able to say in a moment of like triumph, 
I love you, I'm so proud of you, I think I want kids. Like there is just an embrace of saying like, telling people you love them is something you should do all the time in the moment as you feel it because you never know what's gonna come. You never know what splinter universes are about to be formed or who's gonna have to be sent through what wormhole or who you're gonna lose tomorrow. Saying I love you and being able to put a voice and a language to uh, something that a lot of men are, are told to keep uh, you know, bottled inside uh, is, is significant. Uh, in your development. So I, I appreciate that so deeply uh, in this movie. I don't know if there's a better point to end on than that. Yeah. I would like to say, I love you, Midnight Myth listeners. I love you, my wife and co-host, Laurel. I love you, Derek. I, I love, love you, listeners. I love the Into the Spider-Verse movie. I love this two weeks where we discussed nothing but Spider-Man if you, uh, if you listeners want some more Spider-Man, hit us up. We'll talk more Spider-Man. I think there are, there's more Spider-Man to talk about. I think there's a little bit more. <laughs> I mean, spending the last, I'd say, month of my life doing nothing but thinking about Spider-Man. Eh, a month, probably three weeks. I've been thinking about Spider-Man, watching Spider-Man, discussing Spider-Man. I never thought it would land into comparing Charles Dickens and quantum physics in yeah, the same podcast. Neither did I. That is a good sign that you have a great character who will stand the test of time and who has etched their place in pop culture and hopefully artistic history. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Every choice that we make would create countless other popabilities. Popabilities? Popabilities. Can we go back? <laughs> Can we go back and get popabilities out? We're not leaving in popabilities? <laughs> it is when possibility and popcorn become one. <laughs> so well. You really at were. My quantum mechanics, and then I said popabilities. Popabilities. <laughs>